Welcome to The Science of Beauty, a podcast from Allure. I'm Michelle Lee, the Editor-in-Chief. And I'm Jenny Bailly, Executive Beauty Director. On this podcast, we're going to be diving into the science behind beauty and the products that we are always talking about and testing here at Allure. And today on the podcast, we're talking lasers. So Jenny, you and I have both had laser treatments. Yes, I have done laser before. I've done laser hair removal. I've had IPL, which isn't technically a laser. We'll get to that later. It stands for intense pulsed light, but it's a similar idea. There's a little gun thing and flashing. And that really helps with discoloration. For me, it got rid of some of the redness on my cheeks. And I have had Fraxel. I think I did a kind of middle of the road one, not a super light, zero downtime Fraxel, but not the more intense version where you're really hiding out for days. And just for the record, for everyone listening, Fraxel is a brand name for a fractionated laser. And it's kind of become a term like Kleenex. So we say Fraxel, just kind of meaning any fractionated laser. And we will explain explain more later what that means. Yeah. I've had Fraxel. I did Fraxel Dual. And I also did IPL, which again, as you mentioned, isn't really a laser. Fraxel for me, I did have some downtime and I definitely looked a little bit scary for a couple days. People always talk about how you have that sandpaper texture, but I looked great after. I think like my skin was incredibly glowy and it just looked beautiful for the next couple of weeks. So let's talk a little bit about the process of getting laser treatments. And I guess let's talk about Fraxel since we both have had that done. When I went to get Fraxel, what happens is they sit you down in the chair. You've been already slathered with your numbing cream. You sit down, you put on the goggles, and then they start to get to work. Basically, your doctor takes the laser gun and starts pointing it at different parts of your face. And then you hear the beeps and then you start to smell the smell. And the smell is burning flesh. And it just is this thing where I still, even just talking about it, I remember the smell. I remember the beeping more than the smell. I can remember like the smell, like all the little hairs on your face burning. And that kind of went away in the beginning. And then I just remember, yeah, the beeping. Beep, beep. I'd be like, how many more beeps? It's all very futuristic. But the history of how we came to use lasers in skincare actually dates back about 100 years to Albert Einstein. Exactly. Einstein's theory about radiation and light. Yep. So the idea that you could get a group of atoms that contained a huge amount of energy to emit light. Light amplification by the stimulated emission of radiation, which is what laser stands for. I feel like that is a little known fact. Laser is actually an acronym, everyone. But back to Einstein. When he came up with this theory in 1917, it was just a theory. There were no lasers yet. No one had ever actually amplified light by the stimulated emission of radiation. Nobody had. And then right before Einstein died in 1955, somebody actually did it for the first time using microwave radiation. And then after that, it was off to the laser races. And it was pretty early on that people started using these lasers in medicine. This dermatologist named Leon Goldman, who was the first person to use lasers to treat the skin in 1961. Exactly. And about 40 years after that, the first fractional laser was developed. A fractionated laser is a laser that creates this small pattern of injuries in your skin that your skin then heals, which can be used for lots of different skin conditions, including hyperpigmentation, which is why I got fractional laser treatment, Fraxel. And it's definitely a little counterintuitive how, you know, we are burning our skin, injuring our skin in order to make it 
look better, but that is really what lasers are doing. Although I don't exactly understand why. Well, it does remind me a bit of microneedling. The fact that how can you be injuring your skin and then that's what's promoting the collagen and everything to be healing. So I feel like in a, in a lot of different ways, it, it's such a similar process. And it's just striking that, you know, that perfect balance where you haven't injured it too much. Um, it can still come back. Exactly. Well, after the break, we're going to be joined by a dermatologist who will help us understand all of that and more. And we're back here with Dr. Tina Alster, laser expert. Hi, I'm Tina Alster. I'm the director of the Washington Institute of Dermatologic Laser Surgery and clinical professor of dermatology at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. So Dr. Alster, you're here with us today because while most dermatologists love lasers, your passion runs particularly deep. Can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in laser technology? Well, my interest in lasers started when I was a resident at Yale. There was nobody there doing lasers, but I had an interesting patient who came in. She had a port wine stain birthmark, sort of like the red mark that Gorbachev had on his head, except that she had never let her teenage son or her husband uh, see her without its customary camouflage makeup. So I had, had just read an article buried up in the old stacks. I know nobody does that anymore, but in the library at Yale, outlining about a new laser treatment that had been invented to hone in on blood vessels that would get rid of a birthmark like that. And so because of her, I ended up finding this article, reading more about lasers. And because of her, I ended up pursuing a year of a laser surgery fellowship in Boston. This was in 1989 to 90. And that was when it all began. Wow. That wasn't that long ago. And nobody was using lasers? Uh, nobody um, else had lasers back then uh, except to basically um, blast things off and didn't do that that well. This particular laser was different in the fact that it uh, specifically honed in on blood vessels. It was based on this new theory that had been outlined in a science journal that could pinpoint certain things in the skin without destroying other things in the skin like your normal epidermis. So essentially, you could get rid of things in the skin without scarring. Um, and this was the first one that was built on what we call the principles of selective photothermolysis, where you hone in on a particular target in the skin without destroying other things surrounding or overlying that target. And what did that patient say when you were like, I have an idea. I read this article. I'm going to shoot laser beams at your head. Well, <laughs> she was very excited because clearly this had affected her dramatically in her life. And she was a, a very uh, well-known professional. Um, and she was very good about covering this birthmark. But clearly she was emotionally scarred as a consequence of having this. So during the year that I got this fellowship, she ended up going to Boston um, to pursue laser treatments with me. And they would be delivered to her every one to two months to allow the skin to heal in between the treatments. So in essence, 
essence, I changed her life because during the course of that year, I significantly lightened her birthmark to the point where she didn't need its customary camouflage makeup to cover it. And she changed my life because I wouldn't have really looked into the lasers if it wasn't for her. From that, I ended up opening up my own center in Washington, D.C. in 1990. And at that time, it was the only freestanding laser center in the world. And I started with one laser, (laughs) and it was the laser about which we just spoke. And how many do you have today? Oh, I have close to, uh, well, 20 plus devices. Basically, I've been doing this for 30 years. And I used to say, well, we always get a new one every year, but I probably exceeded that. I have a lot of toys in my toy box. Because people didn't really understand lasers back then, can you just walk us through what was it like getting people not only in the medical community, but also just regular people? What was it like getting them to understand lasers? It was easier to convince the regular person to understand lasers more than some of my medical colleagues. Um, There was a fair amount of disbelief, not necessarily in the science, but it was hard for them to understand that uh, this laser could actually destroy certain things without damaging other things in the skin, because the skin is very delicate. Um, So it took a a lot of education. Um, I started, when I came to Washington, I started... uh, giving a lot of lectures to uh, my primarily um, uh, pediatricians and um, gynecologists or uh, obstetricians who were delivering babies that had port wine stains and talking to them about how if they found one of these that they should um, send them to me to get treatment uh, if the parents so desired. Um, and from that, then I actually uh, started lecturing to surgeons, primarily plastic surgeons, about treating um, scars. There was a lot of um, interest in this, but it wasn't until there was an article written about how I could get rid of wrinkles, which was in 1993 or 94, when we started developing these lasers that could literally vaporize skin, that my business really took off. That's when all of Washington literally signed up to get their wrinkles out. And now lasers are such an essential tool in dermatologists' offices and in metaspas, which really kind of started popping up as we became more familiar with lasers. People now are just getting laser treatments like it's no big deal. Well, that's true. I mean, there's a lot of misinformation about lasers. Everybody always thinks it's the laser doing the work rather than the person who's holding the laser and setting the laser parameters that's doing the work. Um, We've built in a lot of safety uh, features in these lasers to make it easy. But just like you give a recipe for brownies to 10 different bakers, they will all come out tasting a little bit differently because they all put their certain spin on it. Some of them may even get burned. So the same thing with lasers. You can give people recipes, and I've done that with textbooks and articles that I've written through the years. It's surprising to me, though, how many times people misread it or don't understand it, and they will operate this machine with not that much knowledge, probably not not any more than you know, which is very scary. I know a lot, though. I bet you do. <laughs> I would still rather be treated by me than you. No yeah, offense. No, and I'd rather I, you write an article about me than me about me. So we all have our strengths. Dr. Alster, how do lasers actually work? Like, how are they working to work on scars, working on port wine stains? Like, what's the science behind it? How this works is that the laser light is converted into heat energy when it hits a certain target. Now, what happens with light is that we we have light wavelengths. There are yellow wavelengths of light. These are all the visible ones, red, blue, green, etc. And what we found was that different targets in the skin will absorb light wavelengths, for instance, for blood, which is 
hemoglobin. Um, it absorbs wavelengths in the yellow, primarily yellow wavelength of light, which is about 585 nanometers. Whereas pigment, which is brown, um, will absorb uh, some light wavelengths that expand a whole wide range, but usually more so in the red and infrared wavelengths, which are longer. They, they, it penetrates a little deeper. Now, in addition to the wavelengths, you, know, you want to pick the right wavelength for the certain target. You want to match it up. You have to keep that laser light on for a certain period of time. This is something that we call the pulse duration. So you don't want to have the right wavelength and then still burn the skin by keeping it on too long a period of time. You want to have it be as brief as possible that you don't burn the overlying skin, but enough heat that you can destroy that target. So each of these targets that we're looking at, whether it's blood in the skin, whether it's a tattoo ink, whether it's melanin, which is pigment, we measure those in the laboratory to um, see what matches better, you know, what wavelength, how long that wavelength should be on, etc. And last but not least, what energy, what power do we use with that particular wavelength and pulse duration? And that's important as well, because you could have the right wavelength, you could have the right pulse duration, and still have too high an energy and burn the skin. So there are a lot of different things that come into play. There's much more than that, but those are the simple three things that uh, we start with. I feel like I'm talking to my 10-year-old about his favorite video game, where he's like, I'm trying so hard to follow. And he's like, and then the lasers, and then you add a crystal, and then you're going to power up. It's fascinating. And I know in the earlier days of lasers, and it's gotten better in, in recent years, but if you were if you had darker skin, you were often cautioned against using lasers or certain kind of lasers. So why is that? Is that just because the dark skin was also a target? Yes, you, you hit a very good point there. And that is darker skin, um, whether it's intrinsic darkness, if you just have dark skin to begin with, or if you have tanned skin, you say you're lighter skin tone, but you just went to the beach. The tanning cells do lie above many of the targets that we are trying to hit. So, you know, you have your epidermis at the base of which is this pigment. And if you have your melanocytes, which are pigment producing cells, activated and they get activated when you're in the sun or if you have darker skin to begin with, you have a lot of pigment right there at a critical point and that basically serves as an umbrella so that the laser light can't get through that well. And what does get through, you have to get through with higher energies oftentimes and that can burn the skin. Now, we've become smarter as we moved along and been able to build lasers that can bypass that system where you can selectively go a little bit deeper and bypass past that outer umbrella, so to speak. But you still have to know what you're doing because even with these safe lasers, you can still burn a hole. And so again, you want to go to somebody who not only has one laser, but you need to go to somebody who has experience treating different skin types, has a number of different lasers that can be applied for different conditions, different skin types, et cetera, et cetera. Right. I have done some reporting over the years on the complications that can come. With laser treatments, when the technology is in untrained hands, and I have seen some very scary pictures, blisters and burns, permanent scars. Some states have pretty stringent regulations about who can operate a laser, but many do not. And in some states, I remember reporting about how treatments did need to be overseen by a supervising doctor, so that's good. But that doctor could be 30 miles away, which isn't really that helpful when lasers travel at the speed of light. 
So before getting any laser treatment, to your point, Dr. Alster, we always tell the Allure audience to ask how many lasers the practice owns. You definitely want the answer to be more than one or two. And also make sure they own them and they aren't just renting them. That's another red flag. And ask who is administering the treatment. If it's not a doctor, will there be a doctor on site? And will you be examined by a doctor first? So definitely do your homework. That is our little caveat emptor moment. And now we can carry on. Totally. So two terms we hear a lot when we're doing reporting on lasers are ablative and non-ablative. Can you explain what the difference is? Well, non-ablative lasers are those lasers that don't ablate or destroy the outer layer of skin. And, you know, let's go back. Let's go back over 20 years ago. The Washingtonian had written this article about me vaporizing off wrinkles and scars. Well, we did that with what we called an ablative laser. And ablative lasers literally um, convert that light energy into heat within water-containing cells. Now, Our skin is full of water. Our epidermis has a little bit more water than our dermis. The epidermis is your outer layer of skin. So we were selectively able to ablate or peel off or vaporize layer by layer the outer layer of skin so that we can get down to the the bottom of a wrinkle or the bottom of an an acne scar. Um, It still was very precise. You had to deal with a lot of post-operative recovery, but that was ablation. You had a wound. You basically were taking it off layer by layer. Whereas non-ablative, you're not ablating the outer layer. What you're doing is you're bypassing the outer layer of skin, which is your epidermis, and you're putting in packets of heat into the dermis. And by doing that, you are actually causing a controlled wound that will cause some new collagen contraction and remodeling. And the collagen, as you know, is one of the building blocks of our skin. It's the major building block of our skin. And if you can stimulate that, you can fill in scars, you can fill in wrinkles, you basically provide a more even field on the surface. And we did that by not ablating or destroying the outer layer, you're going through it and and remodeling from down below. So is it more preferable now to have non-ablative? I still use both in my office, ablative and non-ablative. Now, the reason to do non-ablative is clearly if somebody doesn't want to have an external wound. I mean, everybody wants to have magic happen, but none of the non-ablative systems can give you what an ablative system can do. You have to have recovery. When you do an ablative laser treatment, you will have a wound, and that wound takes an average of seven to 10 days to heal, during which time you may be a little oozy, you certainly are more red, you're swollen, and you're not going to be putting makeup on top of that. So you need to arrange time when you have an ablative type of laser treatment. Okay, got it. So ablative means that you're working on the surface of the skin and you can address more dramatic issues and non-ablative is more behind the scenes. So since we're getting into the laser weeds here, Dr. Alster, can you explain what it means to fractionate a laser? Sure. Well, you know, as I mentioned before, when we first started ablating people's skin and vaporizing layer by layer, we were using at that point what was so fabulous were pulsed and scanned lasers. But you were still imparting a pretty big injury to the skin. Now, it's not as bad as blazing through steel. It wasn't continuous wave, but it was still a lot of heat in the tissue. When you fractionate it, it's almost like um, pixels making up a computer image. You know, a tiny 
little dots there. You basically are forming a whole picture. When we fractionate a laser beam, you're, you're only heating up or treating a certain percentage. Um, oftentimes below 20% of the skin is actually being treated, but the whole surface actually will look better as a consequence of treating that fractionated amount of the skin. And what happens is that the areas that are not directly impacted by the laser actually do end up replenishing the skin that has been directly injured. But the whole thing looks better. I mean, it's like stirring the pot a little bit. You have enough damage, but not too much, if that makes sense. So when you're using a fractionated laser, you don't necessarily have to do five treatments to get that 100% improvement. No, not at all. And, and you know, of course, the more you do, the better it is. I tell people it's sort of like um, weeding a garden. If you weed your garden once, you're going to have fewer weeds. The more you weed your garden, the fewer weeds you have. The more you do any of these fractionated technologies, the better the surface of your skin will be. You know, your scars will look more filled in. The wrinkles will be less discreet. Your skin tone will be much improved. And you can do a whole bunch of them. Uh, one of the questions that my patients always ask me is, like, oh my God, I've already done this a few times, aren't you thinning my skin out too much? It's quite the opposite you actually end up making the skin thicker. And you do that because the new skin that comes in to replace the skin that either has been vaporized or heated selectively, the new skin is coming in from sun-protected areas through follicles that had not really seen the light of day, so to speak. So the new skin coming in, and we know this from doing biopsies, is actually thicker, not thinner, and it's been sun-protected. So what you want to do is to take care of that skin moving forward, but that's your new starting point, and it's actually healthy thicker skin rather than thinner skin. Dr. Alster, Fraxel is ablative, right? Well, Fraxel, there's three different Fraxels. Two of them are non-ablative and one is ablative. So the non-ablative are the clear and brilliant and the dual, okay? The clear and brilliant is the weakest of the two. And then you have the Fraxel Repair, which is a fractionated CO2 laser, which is ablative. So again, you know, every time somebody mentions clear and brilliant, I said, oh, the Fraxel laser. Oh, no, no, I mean the clear and brilliant. I said, well, the clear and brilliant is a Fraxel laser. There's just three different ones. I call Fraxel one of the gateway treatments, okay? Uh, I would say gateway drug is Botox. You know, uh, if you're over the age of 20 and you have a furrow in your brow, yeah, you get Botox. If you're starting to show a few more acne scars, fine little lines, you start with a Fraxel Clear and Brilliant. Now, again, it's very easy to go from Fraxel Clear and Brilliant up to Fraxel Dual. It's just like a step up if somebody thinks that they want to take it up a notch. Um, and it still doesn't take a long time to heal. As you know, you may only be pink for an hour or two. You can be pink for a couple of days, but it's not a big deal to go through either one of those. Interesting. And what about IPL? IPL stands for intense pulsed light. It is often grouped with lasers because it can actually cause a significant wound if you don't know what you're doing. Because it doesn't have a laser designation, it often is um, used by people who may not have much of a medical background. However, do not be fooled. These systems can really pack a punch. And the biggest problem is when people use these IPLs for skin that has been treated well in the past, but then the person got a little bit of sun and they use the same energy with the IPL again, and they have a massively disastrous result, meaning scabbing, oozing, crusting, um, as well as scarring. Um, so it, 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 even though it's not a laser per se, it is um, a high-powered, high-energy system. It's just that it's not as discreetly pulsed as a laser beam. 
But I do find it be useful when we are doing maybe less aggressive treatments like the Clear and Brilliant, which is we know is a Fraxel laser. We'll often combine some of these things together. You use the IPL to diffuse redness um, on the skin and then on top of it, use the Clear and Brilliant to make it better. So we kind of mix and match our own recipes with these lasers. And Dr. Oster, you mentioned earlier the CO2 laser, the carbon dioxide laser for anyone who needs a little chemistry class refresher. Now, when I was starting out in beauty over 20 years ago, these CO2 lasers were kind of the be-all, end-all lasers. But can you explain what they are? Carbon dioxide lasers emit a wavelength in the far infrared spectrum of light, meaning it's like 10,600 nanometers. These are long wavelengths that will actually be absorbed by water-containing tissue. So CO2 lasers, when you actually use one on the skin, you'll see a little puff of smoke come up. That's the vaporizing skin coming off the surface. And so you need to have a smoke evacuator so that you can literally peel off or vaporize the skin layer by layer. But that's what a CO2 laser is. So gross us out for a minute. Like when you do a CO2, what happens to your face? Yeah, it's like you fell down and scraped your face off. But it's usually a bloodless procedure because the heat from the laser cauterizes the vessels. But afterwards, you know, when people leave, it looks like, wow, all their wrinkles or scars are gone because there's some immediate swelling. It looks perfectly smooth. Uh, but then over the next several hours and certainly overnight, by the time they get up the next day, they are swollen. Sometimes the eyes are swollen shut, particularly if they haven't been that good about icing uh, the area and they are very red. And yes, they're oozy. At that point, I tell people it's better to really be like a creature from the Green Lagoon, just keep putting on on lots of aquaphor, which is obviously a little bit more viscous, but it does help the wounds heal better to be in a moist environment. But boy, the first few days are always pretty nasty. And does it just peel off? Actually, it doesn't peel off because with the vaporizing lasers, you've actually done the peel in the office. It's basically gone up in smoke. We have smoke evacuators so that we're not smelling the smoke. So when people leave, they have a clean, open wound. Now, again, it's not bloody, but that's where, you know, the plasma, which is clear, unless you have an infection, in which case, you know, it can get really crusty. They just keep that nice and moist so that the new skin that's coming in from your follicles, it will go and replace the injury up top. So over the summer, here I was normally never doing CO2 in the in the summer for the last decade, um, except in school teachers that have the summer off. This summer, COVID, masks, undercover. I did more CO2 lasers, laser resurfacing this summer than I have in years. It's fascinating. And what about pulsed dye lasers? Well, the pulsed dye laser is my favorite laser. It's because not only that it was the first laser I ever had, but it is the workhorse laser in my office. Now, pulse dye lasers typically will emit a yellow wavelength of light. And the yellow wavelength of light is preferentially uh, taken up in hemoglobin, which is blood cell, it's blood and inside your blood vessels. So you can treat these vascular birthmarks like the port wine stain or hemangiomas, which you see in children as these little red bumps or angiomas, these little cherry spots that people sometimes get just de novo. You can see them in children and adults. A lot of uh, pregnant women break out with some of these as well. You can treat rosacea, which is redness, usually on the face, nose, cheeks, chin, or little spider veins around the nose. Anything that's red except for red tattoo, you can hone in with with a pulse dye laser. 
Does it drive you crazy when people come in and say that they want a specific laser? Well, yes, it does drive me crazy if they're wrong. (laughs) If they're right, I just roll with it. You know, a lot of it is just education. Oftentimes people will read about something in a magazine um, and they may have read it wrong or they may think that they have something that they don't or maybe their neighbor or sister or mother had something and they think that that's the right thing for them. Bottom line, half of my day is actually spent educating patients about the different things that we treat and why something may be better for them than another. Right. The laser's reputation precedes them. You can probably, in part, blame Allure. But on that note, I think for a lot of people, their first laser experience or their main or only laser experience is laser hair removal. So is there one certain laser that's best for laser hair removal or can many different lasers work to get that job done? There are many different systems that one can use. I mean, what you're honing in on with hair is the pigment inside the hair shaft. So you really need to use a wavelength that can be absorbed by pigment. And as I mentioned earlier, there is a wide range of wavelengths that can be used. The main thing is this, is that the target is not just the wavelength. It's how big the target is. Most hairs are large targets. They're not as small as a little red blood cell or not as small as a little pigment that you see in a pigment cell like melanocyte. So you have to have a longer pulse. You want to heat that hair follicle up a little bit longer. So you can use a wide variety of different lasers, but they need to be what we call longer pulsed, meaning that they're on a little bit longer. And what about the opposite of hair removal? Are there uses for lasers in stimulating hair growth? I find that for stimulating hair growth, there's nothing better than using PRP, which is obviously your own blood spun down. We take the platelet-rich plasma and we inject it back in. It's like miracle growth for the hair. I think that there's nothing better than that. Right now, I would not use a laser to stimulate hair um, unless it's in a study and until we really find out a little bit more. But it is an area of interest. And how far have we gotten with lasers that are used to remove tattoos? I know for a while, you know, it took many sessions and I have friends who had their like sorority symbol removed from their ankle and it was still like a black smudge kind of after 12 sessions. Is that still the case? Well, we have better lasers. You know, when we first started using lasers for tattoo hair removal, we call those Q-switch lasers. Very brief quality switch. That's what the QS stands for. Very brief nanosecond pulse durations. And it took about nine to 12 treatments in order to get rid of 80% or more of a tattoo. And oftentimes they would look a little smudgy or you'd see a little ghost outline, but you really did selectively get that pigment out. In the past several years, there are even more brief pulse duration lasers called Pico lasers. And these are a thousand times briefer um, in terms of pulse. And they really do blast that tattoo pigment, again, without destroying the normal surrounding skin if you use the right energy. It still takes numerous treatments in order to treat a tattoo. You know, so even though I think it's that much more selective, you can clear a little bit more each time. It's still a costly endeavor in terms of time, money, and energy. It's not a home run. 
even after several sessions. Yeah, it's not a home run. Dr. Alster, I've had microneedling and I've had laser, um, but someone had told me at some point that if, if for some reason you're not a candidate for laser, that you can do microneedling. What I like about microneedling is that you don't have to respect what we call cosmetic borders as much as we do with lasers. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's very difficult to use a laser on just one little pockmark in the middle of your cheek. If you only use a laser in that area, no matter what your skin type is, it's never really going to match because even if you have a pale skin type and you vaporize something in the middle of your face, it's still going to look like it doesn't match. It's like taking a smudge out of a white wall. It just always looks a little smudgy. It doesn't look like it belongs. So when we talk about most lasers, uh, particularly if you're dealing with scars or wrinkles, you have to treat what we call a whole cosmetic unit. So you may have one little scar in the middle of your cheek, and yet you have to do the whole cheek all the way down to the jawline to, you know, the nasolabial groove up under the eye. It's a bigger deal. Whereas with microneedling, you don't really have to do that because you're tilling the land, but you're not putting light energy and turning it into heat. Once you have heat in the skin, you actually bought yourself redness or what we call erythema for weeks, if not months, depending on the laser that you have. So what I like about microneedling is that while it sounds barbaric, and yes, we cause bleeding when we're doing the medical microneedling, the actual healing from it is much more quick because you don't have prolonged redness. I like to throw in microneedling when somebody has like enlarged pores on the nose or wrinkles around the mouth or atrophic scars on the temples or cheeks. And I combine that often with a non-ablative fractionated laser, like a clear and brilliant or a fraxel dual. So I'll do the uh, microneedling first in the areas that really need it. And then on top, we'll do one of the non-ablative lasers just to even everything out. So in the same session, in the same session. I do multiple treatments in the same session every day. We'll start usually at the deeper, like today I must have done, I don't know, at least 12 combination treatments, right? So we start with the injectables. I'll do some toxin. I'll do a little bit of filler. And then we may trace some blood vessels. And then if they have little sunspots, we'll get a pigment-specific laser. And then if they have, like, say, wrinkles on their upper lip, I'll use microneedling. And then on top of all that, we will do a clear and brilliant. And they have just one healing time, right? Um, so they love it. All right, Dr. Ulster, we have some listener questions for you. My name is Elaine Grayson. I'm from Denver, Colorado, and I had more than 10 sessions of laser hair removal done. It worked at first, but a year later, the hair started growing again. What went wrong? Well, it's not that something went wrong, but um, I always say that hair removal is like weeding a garden. You know, the more you weed your garden, the fewer weeds you have. So what happened is that as you were getting the hair removal treatments, you had fewer weeds in your garden. But any weeds that are left behind, even if there are only five of them, they will do as they're programmed to do. They will continue to grow. And you may have had other weeds that were just trying to get through when you're getting the laser hair removal treatment, and they're going to grow back too. So um, it's a little bit like whack-a-mole. Um, it depends, obviously, on a number of things, not just how your hair grows, but other things that may be related to your hair growth in general. I mean, you may have some other conditions that may affect hair growth. We always check the thyroid. We check to see whether somebody's anemic. But oftentimes, it's just the way that the hair grows. The hair follicle has a tremendous capacity to reform. So if you leave a little bit of the weed or the hair follicle behind, it will reform and it will produce hair and maybe not as thick or as fast as before, but it will come back. Hi, my name is Carla. 
I've seen a lot of Medi spas popping up around my neighborhood and seen an uptick in day spas offering facial treatments. I've never been one to really skim on pricing when it comes to my face and which doctors to go to, but these new options are pretty alluring. If I wanted to get a laser facial, is there a difference between going to a dermatologist versus going to a Medi spa? Well, it depends on if it's really a laser facial, right? I mean, sometimes people just talk about having an intense pulse light or or maybe a light emitting diode, which I guess you could say is a laser. It's a very low level laser. Those type of low level lasers are perfectly safe, but there are different degrees of laser facials. You have to really ask what is involved. Am I going to have a wound? Am I not going to have a wound? What can I expect to get as a consequence of this? If this is just a low level light laser facial, there's no difference. However, if you're getting an ablative laser about which we spoke earlier, there's a big difference. I would never go to a spa for that. In fact, I would probably be very careful, whoever you're going to, that he or she has had a lot of experience not only performing the procedure, but dealing with the aftermath of the procedure, both good and bad. You know, everything's rosy if you've never had a complication or had to handle a complication. You want to really go to somebody who has actually handled problem cases because you don't know whether you're going to be one of those. Hi, my name is Emily and I'm from New York. Lasers are so powerful. I'm a little scared of what they could do to my body. Does the light penetrate deeply enough to be harmful or are they safe? Well, as we mentioned earlier, laser is light, right? But it's not dangerous like ionizing radiation that comes from x-rays, particularly with repeated use. Now, what's nice about lasers, at least the ones that we use for these medicinal purposes, is that they are perfectly safe if used properly. They are non-ionizing. They will not change cell structure, meaning they will not cause you to have cancer, Okay, they may cause scarring if used improperly, but they will not injure your uh, internal organs in any way. So, for instance, when I was nine months pregnant, literally hours away from delivering my child 25 years ago, I used lasers day in and day out up until literally two hours away from when I delivered my baby. And I did not worry one bit about exposure from the laser light because it was non-ionizing. Okay. And should we ask just quickly, because you mentioned LEDs earlier, could you explain what the difference is between an LED treatment and a laser treatment, if there is one? Well, LED stands for light emitting diode. These are very low level energy lasers or systems that can change cells in a mostly positive manner. There have been so many reports about a number of different low level light treatments or LED, the light emitting diodes that will make your skin look more radiant. I know I use LED treatments after a non-ablative or an ablative laser procedure to reduce redness and swelling by a good couple of days days um, after treatment. The bottom line is we know that they do something. It's just hard to quantify. I think that if you go to either a physician or a spa that has these, you know that you're not going to be harmed by them. They're very, very safe. Um, But it's unclear how much any of them do. Because a lot of the at-home devices, light devices we see, it'll be the blue light or the red light. So that's LED. 
yes, they're all LED technology. And and I think that they all have a place. I would never say that they do the same as what we have in the office. Um, I, but I, I like at-home treatments, but only if you're really going to use them. If you're just going to buy the device, use it for a week, and then put it under your sink, it's not going to do anything, right? And I think that's what happens to a lot of these at-home devices. Yeah, that would be a good device. Put it under your sink, and your skin looks amazing. <laughs> I know. So again, it's one of those things I tell people, I love some of these at-home devices. I think they they keep the fire burning. Um, they keep you pointed in the right direction. But more important than that, and it's certainly easier for most people, is to be on a better skincare regimen. So I tell people, no sense in me doing something in the office if you're not going to do your homework. I get everybody started on a better skincare regimen that they must follow every day. They have to follow my prescription. And if they actually change, they have to ask Mother May I. I give everybody my email um, and uh, they, I have rules. They can't ask me more than three questions. They cannot be multi-part questions. If they ask me a question, they have to, it has to be posed in a yes or no fashion. And since most of my patients in Washington are either journalists or attorneys, they know how to pose questions well. And they're very respectful of that. We just asked you a lot of multi-part questions, Dr. Alster, and they were not yes or no. So thank you for bending the rules for us today and for sharing so much of your expertise. This was fascinating and we so appreciate it. Well, it was fun, girls. (laughs) I had fun too. We got to do this again. I really want to get a CO2 laser now. (laughs) I know. Yeah, you got to be in it to win it for that one. It's it's always (laughs) a bigger deal than you think, but I'm ready. Come on down to Washington. We'll have fun. Awesome. Thank you so much. Great. Bye, guys. Wow. Dr. Ulster really knows her stuff. And there's so much to know about lasers. She really does. And there really is. Okay, Jenny, before we go, we've got to talk about our favorite products we use to treat our skin after lasers. Although, of course, everyone's skin is different. And be sure to ask your dermatologist what's best for you. Okay, after I got Fraxel... I slathered my face with Aquaphor, which I think most dermatologists suggest because you really do need to keep your skin moist for aftercare. And then it's all about sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen. I am loving right now the Dr. Loretta Broad Spectrum SPF 40. It's the urban antioxidant sunscreen. Um, I actually keep it right on my desk. So this one is really great for aftercare too. And I too, yes, I remember using Aquaphor and then just a... And again, this is after Fraxel, so a little more of a of an intense laser. Um, but CeraVe has just a really nice fragrance-free, it's just called a moisturizing cream. Um, and it has hyaluronic acid, it has ceramides, so it's a nice way to keep that moisture in without causing any irritation. And I also, after Fraxel, and I wanted to cover up that kind of sandpaper texture and those little dark dots, um, I actually bought at the dermatologist's office a uh, foundation from a brand called Oxygenetics, and it's the Oxygenetics Oxygenating Foundation that I guess a lot of dermatologists and plastic surgeons like for people to use when they're healing because there's nothing in there that can be irritating. And, you know, it's thicker than what I would normally use for foundation because I was trying to cover something up, but it was, it gave a really seamless finish. So worked well, got me through that week or two afterwards. I know. That's really good because those dots are hard to cover up. I mean, still, I wouldn't have wanted anyone to get too close. But, you know, in an office setting, even pre-COVID, no one got that close. (laughs) All right, that's it for this episode of The Science of Beauty, which is actually our last episode of the season. You can find all 12 episodes now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate and leave us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It helps new listeners find the show. You can find additional information and episode references in the show notes. Follow Allure on Instagram at Allure, and I'm at Hey Michelle Lee, and Jenny is at J by E, B A I L L Y. On our audio team, our lead producer is Carla Green. Executive producer is Shara Morris. Natalie Wren is our associate producer, and sound engineer is Scott Somerville. On the Allure team, the editorial leads are Soyeni Driscoll and Diana Mazone. Lead researcher is Julie Risabudo, and project manager is Monica Perry. The theme music is by Asha Ivanovich. Special thanks to Julie Shen and Neon Hum. Hey, Michelle.